This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com. Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Talks. Today, it was a pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Michael Gordon. He's an orthopedic surgeon out of the Milwaukee Orthopedic Group. Uh, we did the, the recording at their offices, and uh, Aaron Buffuno, physical therapist with Freedom, was also with me, and I was glad to have her along because she was able to give an insight from a PT's perspective, and then we were also able to talk to Dr. Gordon um, about his background, about ACL uh, injuries and repairs, and then about the medical system in general and how it's working for patients and what he would change about it. And Aaron was able to have an excellent conversation with him along with me. And I can't tell you how thankful we are that he was willing to do this. Um, We hear nothing but great things about uh, Dr. Gordon. So if you have if you're in the Milwaukee area and ever have any uh, orthopedic issues, um, he would definitely be one of the top names that uh, we would recommend. So I hope you enjoy the interview. It was super insightful, and uh, here it is. So today we are uh, honored to have uh, Dr. Michael Gordon, uh, who works for the Milwaukee Orthopedic uh, Group um, of Surgeons in Milwaukee. Uh, he is a Milwaukee native. Uh, he pra- his practice specializes in sports medicine and disorders of the shoulder, elbow, and knee and ankle. His medical trifecta includes an MD from Me- Harvard Medical School, an orthopedic surgery residency from the prestigious Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago, and has a fellowship in sports medicine from Boston's New England Baptist Hospital, where he worked with the Boston Celtics. He was also a place kicker for the University of Pennsylvania football team, recently completed his ninth marathon, is that correct? Uh, that that's, that's been updated old? a little bit. Uh, okay. I think we're through about 37 now. 37. Okay, that's way off. <laughs> Including Boston, Chicago, and Milwaukee's lakefront. Uh, on top of that, um, he is an avid runner and uh, the physician advisor to the Badgerland Striders. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I, I wanted to start kind of uh, there as a starting point. So super interested and super athletic, obviously. Did that have any influence on you uh, getting into where you are now, or was this all, was that kind of how did you start getting into uh, the field of surgery, and things like that? Um, I guess I, I first off, thanks for having me, and uh, I guess I'm one of the lucky folks that knew at an early age that I wanted to do something in healthcare. And uh, my grandfather was a ear, nose, and throat physician. My uncle is a neonatologist, and my father's an orthodontist. Uh, and so I've been exposed to lots of really wonderful people and, and role models. Uh, I was fortunate to enjoy math and science, and I was one of those kids uh, growing up. And so this pathway was, was uh, something that was pretty easy for me to, to fall into. Uh, in med school, uh, I pretty much knew I wanted to do something that was surgical. Uh, I'm not real patient, and uh, the the 
idea of being able to fix something when it walks in the office and be able to take steps to quickly diagnose a problem and then help work through it and try and get people better was very uh, satisfying and, and uh, enticing to me. Uh, I looked at ear, nose, and throat and uh, uh, orthopedics. Uh, I had been fortunate to have been treated uh, previously by some wonderful orthopedic surgeons when I was growing up for some smaller injuries. And I think that's how most of us end up in the field is we've had some interaction with them. And it just was a, the right fit for me. And it kind of melded my, my love of sports and being active and uh, my interest in medicine. So you said 37 marathons, right? Yes. So, and that's including some of the big ones that you have to uh, qualify for, like Boston. Uh, that's probably the most prestigious one, correct? I was a little bit spoiled that the, uh, my first marathon was Boston Marathon. I'd never been a runner before I went to med school. Oh, wow. And okay. uh, my first year of med school, one of my good friends uh, was running the Boston Marathon, and the, mar- the med school is about mile 24. So I remember going out and watching and seeing uh, the leaders come through and, and just acting like it was just a, a stroll in the summertime as they're flying by at a sub-five-minute mile. <laughs> and then seeing my friend and seeing all the pageantry of this event. And in Boston, it's, it's a almost religious event because it's a state holiday, so the people are lining the road for 26 miles. And, and it's just a, it was a wonderful introduction to running. So I, I did that first, and uh, I've had a chance to, to travel around the country. I've made some great friends through running, and uh, I've had a chance to explore different parts of the country, run up in Alaska. Uh, we just ran out near Seattle, uh, been out down the southeast a little bit, and just becomes a good adventure. Do you, do you just kind of do pavement, or do you do trail running and things like that? You know, I'm not the, the greatest trail runner. Okay. Um, I actually enjoy getting out in, in, on trails, but uh, at this point it's a much more of, a, I guess, as you would put it, the pavement. Sure. Uh, I will say the one we did out near Seattle was an old rail line going through the mountains and oh, it was cool. basically crushed gravel and it was absolutely gorgeous and you know some parts were a little rougher than others but really it was basically a, a, a gravel okay. uh, path as opposed to a true trail so obviously with that kind of connection uh, so what do you uh, do in the role for the badgerland striders exactly like is it just a kind of an advisory role or are you just the go-to guy if they have any issues or kind of how did that develop um I- my role is really just to be there to be to helpful if people have questions. Okay. Uh, the Badger and Stars have a wonderful program in the summertime, which I, I, I wouldn't say it's unique, but it was unique to me when I first came back to Milwaukee that uh, the Lakefront Marathon is, is coming up October 6th, so it's basically about a week from now, but it's always the first Sunday in October. And usually about the last weekend in June, first week in July, they start with a build-up program. And they get together with uh, new runners, old runners, um, young folks, older folks, first-time marathoners, uh, 50th marathoners, and everyone starts running together. They start with a six- to eight-mile run and end up with a 22-mile run and then taper, and it's a supported run out there where they've got water and Gatorade. Sometimes they'll have nutritional on the course, and then it's always some nutrition snacks afterwards, and it becomes a nice social event, and it's really fun to watch the new runners who've never done this before kind of accomplish, well, I just went 12 miles. And then this week I went 14 miles. I've never done this before. And, and the challenges of that. And my role really started as just being a, a resource for people afterwards and spend a, you know, hour, two, three hours, depending on the, the day and the conditions uh, out there afterwards if people have questions and, and ailments or, you know, new feelings, you're not sure what it is. And um, one nice thing with the running community is that because I'm a runner, I understand a lot of what they're experiencing. I think that goes yeah. through whether you're the therapist taking care of them, the doc, um, the psychologist, the nutritionist. You know, runners are very, very body aware. And yep. the reason why we get more injuries, quote unquote, 
is primarily because we take more steps than most people. Mm -hmm. In an hour, if you're going to go, say you're running a, a seven mile per hour pace, average person's maybe walking two or three miles an hour, we're doubling that. And so just more steps. And so it can exacerbate uh, uh, smaller problems. Yeah, I didn't, before I came to Freedom, I, I didn't, wasn't really introduced. And then we have a few therapists that are doing running evaluations and are a little bit more into it than other therapists are. And I just didn't realize how much goes into it. And that's, that's really awesome. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your relationship with Marquette Sports. Um, so how is it, is that kind of the same system as the, the Badgerland Striders where they're kind of there for you or um, are you kind of in front of those guys more than usual or, or what is your relationship like with Marquette? Marquette has a wonderful team approach okay. to taking care of their athletes. Uh, there are several primary care sports medicine physicians uh, employed by Marquette that really are the head doctors over there. Um, my partner and I work as the, the orthopedic consultants form and uh, obviously a lot of athletic injuries are going to require uh, the, the services of what uh, my partner and I can provide. Uh, but so we're, we're there and available. We help cover some of the sporting events. Um, I try to get to as many as I can just because I enjoy it. I enjoy watching the, the uh, interaction of the students having played college sports. I, I remember those days. I get to relive some of my glory days, uh, <laughs> as much glory as we had with, I think, one win. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, and get a chance to, you know, build a rapport with the students so if they do get hurt they've got a bigger trust with us sure because you know one thing with college sports or even high school sports you have a four-year window actually I guess five technically in college but to, this limited window to actually do the activity you enjoy and uh, our job is trying to help people get through okay. that and can you do it safely and I think the difference between sports medicine and, and orthopedics when there's obviously a huge overlap is that sometimes you have to consider well they've got this short window are they a senior are they a freshman what's the you know is it worth the risk it, and it helps you kind of do some of that risk uh, uh, balancing with them so what is the what does the healthcare team uh, for those colleges look like like how you said there was a kind of a team approach um, kind of what what does their care look like on a on a day-to-day -day basis so I'll use Marquette as the model because it's the one I know the best, but quite it's very similar to my, my experience at Penn. You know, the, the athletic trainers are really the day-to-day -day people okay. uh, helping to, to look after um, the students because, I mean, if you remember when you're 18 to 20 years old, a lot of them are away from home. People are used to relying on their parents, you know. They get the sniffles. They, they get a sore throat. What do I do about this? So a lot of the stuff, they may even be doing some of the primary, you know, care type uh, start day-to-day -day things. But uh, the, the trainers will do the initial assessment, and if they need to get uh, um, us more involved, they'll let us know. Or they'll let the primary care sports med docs know, and then if they feel that uh, it requires more uh, of our involvement, uh, we get asked. You know, on the sidelines, uh, I've always taken the approach. I try to be um, a little bit more behind the scenes. Uh, my job is to support the athletic trainers, and if they need us, were available. I learned that very early on covering high school football. Yeah. Uh, you don't run out in the field every time uh, a 16-year-old <laughs> kid doesn't get up because sometimes it's they're just learning what it feels like to have a, a, a bruise and sometimes it is a big injury but the athletic trainer that's their world and if they need us they'll call us out. Okay um, so is it mostly just then the athletic trainers that are full-time with the college and then um, kind of the other people that they might consult, like you guys are, you're because you're obviously working with the the general population along with the sports teams, right? Yes, um, they. I mean, the athletic trainers are employed, but I, I, you also include in this whole team approach. They have uh, strength conditioning staff, sure. um, and they've got you know uh, fantastic uh, facilities for the the athletes to uh, train, and they've got um, nutritional involvement, and they've got psychology involvement with sports psychology, and for the students there, there's academic support and everything else because it it is the whole picture 
um, our role really is supporting them. Okay. Um, so I, we wanted to get into a little bit of ACL talk. It's just something a lot of our patients have questions about. Um, and so we've also had Aaron on the podcast the whole time. I didn't introduce her, but Aaron's been on the podcast before. So um, I brought her in because obviously she's going to have a little bit more knowledge than I am to kind of ask you questions and, and have a conversation about things. So um, we're just going to start with uh, simply like what is the ACL and how is it typically injured um, just as a general back background we can hit that quickly and then we can kind of move on from there sure ACL stands for anti-cruciate ligament it's one of the central two ligaments that the run right through the middle of the knee um, anti-cruciate ligament sits in front of the posterior cruciate ligament uh, they make an X um, I always joke that orthopedists aren't the smartest when it comes to things we just describe it the front of the X is the anti-cruciate ligament the back of the X is the posterior cruciate ligament uh, the ACL and PCL work in concert to, to help keep the knee centered, um, to help keep the shin bone from rotating uh, too much and to keep it from sliding too far forwards or backwards. Um, the difference between the ACL and most other ligaments is that it runs to the middle of the joint, and, and that, that's a fundamental difference in how we have to treat injuries to the ACL. Um, an ACL tear and an ACL sprain are interchangeable, uh, so if people have ever sprained their ankle, which most of us have, it swells up and then, you know, it's stiff and about three months later you forget which ankle you sprain because that ligament lives outside the joint and the parallel bundles of collagen like a rope kind of glue themselves back together and, and restore. Uh, with the ACL, because it runs to the middle of the joint, the joint lining doesn't allow the two ends to knit back together very well. And so what happens is they kind of get capped off and so the knee becomes more unstable. Um, we have secondary stabilizers in the knee. Uh, the capsule, the other ligaments, and uh, most notably the uh, posterior horns of the meniscus, which are the shock absorbers inside the knee, and they can help provide a fair amount of stability. It's uh, ultimately when those fail and an ACL fail that people become very unstable. Um, I guess some basic statistics on ACL injuries, as you're asking about mechanisms, about two-thirds of ACL tears happen from non-contact. It's uh, the classic, uh, you see it, somebody plants their leg, and uh, there's a sudden shift and uh, um, that it's usually a, a rotation where the shin bone rotates too far forward. So with uh, that being said, what's the athlete that you see the most around here that t generally has an ACL injury? You know, the, my, my practice is skewed a lot more towards younger. Yeah. Um, so it's far more common to see it in young females. Yeah. So the young female soccer player, basketball player um, that uh, um, gets injured non-contact very few are contact injuries right. interesting even though the, the statistics say two-thirds one-third I, I i just guessing in our practice by 80 90 percent are non-contact they don't remember being hit or they remember something pushing them in the upper body but their knee shifting uh, it's not that classic you see the football player some guy drives through the knee in a tackle and you watch it you know twist um that that's the atypical way we see it sure and just for people that don't really quite understand how it's injured you said mostly it's with rotational yeah and then planted Mm -hmm. planted positioning and then shoving but now what other uh, structures of the knee do you generally see injured with the ACL? So the most common things to see with it uh, MCL sprain on the inside which is the, the uh, big flat ligament that runs uh, all on the uh, inside part of your knee so if it's the right knee it's the left part of your right knee. Um, other structures that you'll see very commonly in the meniscus there's something called the terrible triad uh, which is a meniscus tear with uh, uh, MCL sprain and ACL. Uh, the, the hidden one that, that's been 
argued is one of the big reasons when ACL reconstructions fail as opposed to a lot of corner injury, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the posterior of the back, outside corner of the knee. There's a confluence of ligaments and a tendon back there that uh, uh, provides support. And that's the hardest thing for us to reconstruct because we're not as good at providing a dynamic restraint of what the, the tendon that gets involved is the popliteus. Now, when you would do any sort of reconstruction involving some of those other structures, like let's say the MCL and the ACL, then would you do the surgery at the same time? Would you split it up? Oftentimes, MCLs you don't have to fix. It's a very broad ligament. It tends to scar itself back down. There's a couple um, indications that you do need to fix it. If somebody's leg is unstable at full extension, that means that it involves what's called the posterior medial corner, um, and that usually needs to be tacked back down. Um, or if uh, when you look at an imaging study and the uh, MCL is not just pulled off the bone but it's kind of rolled up on itself, uh, oftentimes it's better to go in there and tack that back down. I traditionally have staged the surgeries because I think people get very stiff otherwise, and I think that, that it's very taxing. Uh, whether you stage it four to six weeks apart or three months apart, it depends on the individual. Uh, you know, it's very hard to present to a patient that not only am I going to do one surgery, I'm going to do two. So I'm going to take you to the operating room twice. I'm going to inflict pain twice, and it's going to prolong the recovery process. But usually uh, when we present it, it's ultimately to give you a better long-term outcome actually to shorten your recovery process. Because, uh, Aaron, I think that as you can attest to, a stiff knee is actually much harder to deal with than an st- uh, unstable knee. Because uh, we can brace an unstable knee for a lot of things, but the stiff knee that just doesn't want to go straight or that you just can't bend is just a, a very limiting problem. Now, when someone comes into your office with knee pain or they think they may have done something, what signs are you looking for that they possibly may have torn their ACL? A couple things. There, there are, in, in medicine, you describe subjective complaints and objective complaints. Um, subjective would be, uh, Doc, my knee hurts. Doc, my knee feels loose. Um, doc, my knee feels stiff. Um, the objective uh, things, and particularly objective what we're looking for in ACL is one is a swollen knee. Uh, ACLs tend to swell very fast. Usually if somebody gets hurt, they tell you they felt a pop, um, they felt something shift, and they swelled up within an hour or two hours. It gets a little bit confusing when, when it is one of the Marquette athletes because there's almost always a trainer right there. They immediately wrap it and immediately start icing it to minimize some of that swelling, but ACLs tend to swell fast. If people don't swell until the next day, uh, I'm less concerned about ACLs. It can still happen, so I don't want everyone to, to run out and think, okay, they don't have an ACL injury. But um, looking for that, looking for uh, increased movement. You know, we're going to ask people to try and relax, which is the hardest thing. Take the joint they're most afraid of that maybe hurts and say, oh, by the way, I'm not going to pull on it. And really do a side-to-side comparison. You know, we're, we're, we're fortunate with what I do for a living that uh, you've got a left and a right side. And, you know, there, there's no perfect uh, stability. It's really does it feel like the other side in my mind. Now, in terms of surgery versus non-surgery, if someone has a lot of instability, would you ever consider not doing surgery to repair the ACL or reconstruct? You know, I I think a lot of it depends on their demands, their goals, their overall health status. Um, There there are certainly patients in our practice that I've talked out of doing surgery on. Um, I, I don't think it's the right thing for everybody. Um, there used to be this age idea that if you're above the age of 50, we shouldn't be doing it. I think I've done ACLs in, in people uh, 65, 67. They're still skiing you know, every day in the wintertime, and they caught an edge and tore their ACL. And they want to get back to doing it, and if they want to aggressively ski, that's very hard to do with an, without an ACL. That being said, there are plenty of people who still ski. Excuse me, um, I, I go out to Vermont for a, a week a year, 
uh, in January and cover a clinic out there, and I'm always amazed the number of the staff members that have torn their ACLs that still ski. And they'll st ski the greens and light blues. Uh, we always argue, don't let your skis come off the ground. Um, and also try and ski in the mornings before the conditions change, before there's more heaps of snow, before it gets icier, um, so that you have a little more controlled environment. Um, if somebody wants to do more sagittal plane sports, like they just want to run or they just want to bike, uh, I'm less aggressive with it. If they want to trail run, I'm more concerned about it because I think that you're more apt to uh, try and you know, pivot and twist off that leg. Um, if they want to get back to any of the higher level sports, soccer, football, basketball, lacrosse, I think it's, it's nearly impossible to do that um, safely. Um, the studies are very clear when you look at the data on people who are treated non-operative with ACL tears, down the road there's about a four to five times chance they're gonna uh, tear a meniscus. And we've always argued from an orthopedic perspective that the meniscus is a shock absorber helps minimize your risk of arthritis. So theoretically it then sets them up for some arthritic problems. Um, now when we're talking about, you, someone walks in your office, they have that knee pain, I felt a pop, they've got the swelling, you suspect an ACL tear then you send them for imaging most likely to kind of determine that and then what happens from that point on, just to kind of give some people that are curious sure. about what happens after so that initial diagnosis. Almost always we'll get x-rays as a starting point, particularly if it's a teenager, because yeah. we're going to be worried about growth plates because the surgery can definitely influence the growth plates and that will uh, affect some of our recommendations and how might we need to do the procedure. Um, almost always an MRI scan. Uh, we, we've become almost dependent on that. Most of us know the diagnosis. Uh, in pro sports, getting MRIs and, and uh, other supportive studies helps you buy a little bit of time so you can start making arrangements, but also it gives you a better picture of what's going on inside the joint. And you can look and say, oh, wow, there is a meniscal problem. I can do a better job of counseling a patient about how long the recovery is going to be um, and what, what the recovery is going to be like in the early phases. Um, for example, if there is a meniscus tear that we can fix, which isn't all of them, um, we will slow down the recovery a bit for the first uh, several months. Ultimately, it, it probably cost about four weeks by the end, but it's the first few months very different. And for a high school student to be now weight-bearing for the first four weeks versus being able to walk with crutches and put some weight down, that's a whole different ball game about getting through school and carrying a backpack and you know efficiency throughout the day. So it's nice to be able to give that kind of uh, uh, information. So now that you're talking about overall long-term recovery for an ACL into someone that's had an ACL reconstruction, what are the biggest take-home pieces you tell them pre-surgery to prepare for post-surgery? Um, my standard description for an isolated ACL is it's about a six to nine month recovery process. And I think that uh, we've tried to push the limits biologically. Um, I'm not so sure that we can. There was just an interesting article about uh, um, a wide receiver, I believe at Clemson. Uh, it was T. Martinson, I was just reading this, that he was back at four months four, four and a half months, and, you know, the, we go by functional testing, and, and, you know, some people are just phenomenal athletes. Adrian Peterson's another one, just a, just a special kind of athlete. And I don't know if their biology is any better, though. And we know that the graft is weak for the first several months. We know that that graft is being repopulated. Um, everyone's trying new innovations to make this process go faster. I don't think we're there yet. I think that right. um, people are, are finding new ways to approach it and I think it's great I just don't know the right answer yet so I can just speak from our experience that when we wait six to nine months somewhere in that range and it's not a time frame it's a hey when do you do 
your functional testing. When is your right leg balanced to your left? When you do squatting, do I see your hips not cave in, but I watch that it go straight forward or when the, the therapist put them through jump testing, things like that, they're moving well, that's when we say it's okay. Um, so that's the first part we tell them. Realistic expectations is, is hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now I've got kids who play spring sports who are presenting my office with a fall injury and going, realistically, you may not be ready for your season because just because you're ready, your knee is ready, you're not in shape yet. Right. And there's difference from being fit and then being in lacrosse shape or being in soccer shape. So it, those are hard conversations, but uh, you got to have them. Um, the second part is that for the first few days, you're going to hate me um, <laughs> because the surgery hurts. Yeah. You know, it's one of the struggles we have, and, and, and I respect the fact that there's a, a big opioid crisis the, in, the, in the country right now. But unfortunately, we create pain. We're inflicting the pain, and we have to do something to help control that. It doesn't always have to be narcotics. It's, you know, using ice. It's using uh, um, power positive thinking, which really does matter, having a support structure distraction. But there's just a component where it just hurts. We drill holes. We use a saw, um, you know, and, and that's not real comfortable. Right. A lot of people, I think, like you said, just go into it thinking, oh, it's just a surgery. They're just going to fix it up. I'm going to be out. Yeah, I'll be down for a couple of months, but no big deal. So like, I just don't think they quite understand the pain afterwards. But I think the more, like you said, they know going into it, the better they end up coming out of it. And if they have those tools to be able to use to kind of help manage their pain, that definitely goes goes a long way without having to jump to the opiates. But also with that being said, some people just don't want to take anything because they just think, well, now I'm just going to be get dependent on it, even if it is Tylenol or something just to help manage their pain levels. That um, How do you talk to patients about their pain management techniques when it comes to medication? It's just being honest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, I've learned a lot in these past few years about different opioids. I, I think there's been a lot more education for us um, that was never really probably fully understood. Even things, you know, oxycodone being one of the more dangerous drugs out there, that it is a much more addictive medication. Um, a lot of us were under the, the training of, well, they all have about the same addictive potential, so you know it doesn't matter which one you use, and we've always kind of step-laddered the meds down. Now we're much more judicious how we use some of these meds. Um, a lot of multimodal treatment where you try and blunt some of the pain response before surgery starts, and if you can do that, the, the brain um, responds better to it. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's engaging the whole team it's having the parents involved hey make sure the friends are available to come by or um cryotherapies and cold therapy um i'm not a huge fan of blocks um there are um some benefits to using a pain block it's never been my preferred way of doing things um and i think that uh um, as long as you're you're straightforward with the patients they know what's coming they can be prepared for it. The other thing, quite honestly, is, is getting them started in therapy, getting it moving. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't use CPMs, which is the continuous passive motion machine, early in my career, and, and I've evolved into it because I think patients like it. It makes them feel better because they start moving, and they're not as afraid of moving it. It takes away part of that fear. Um, also engaging in therapy right away. Um, there's, there, there's no understating the value of having a great therapist patient relationship and also a very talented therapist and i'm not just saying that because i'm talking to therapists uh, we talk about that all the time with you, know, you can have anybody do the surgery you know, it, it takes hour and a half two hours out of my life um, they're going to spend the next six months rehabbing with a particular individual or a team of individuals and that's going to determine the outcome 
kind of like you said, as much as therapy is important, having friends come by the house, and it goes for any knee surgery, not just an ACL, it doesn't matter your age too, is some people just want to have someone come to their house and do therapy with them, but it's not the same. Like getting out of the house, getting fresh air, seeing sunlight, interacting with other people goes a long way with just your overall psyche. Again, fresh air, all of that just makes your body move. Your heart rate goes up a little bit more, which helps with circulation. So getting out of the house and going to therapy again, not just because I'm a therapist, does go a long way with people's pain control. And then just to kind of wrap up the ACL stuff before we move on, what do you, do you find yourself using one graft more than the other? I know that's kind of a loaded question if we're talking patellar tendon versus hamstring versus any other tendon you might take to do the ACL. Yes. Um, I think all of us have our biases, what we think is going to be the best way to go. And I think the literature is pretty clear that using your own tissue all of the grafts do well um i think it's in my hands our experience has been patella tendon autographs so taking somebody's own patella tendon um has been and continues to be the gold standard graft it's always been the gold standard graft in the united states in europe there was a heavy push towards hamstring grafts and it's interesting from my time with the bucks we had a lot of interaction with some of the european therapists from manchester united and chelsea and we asked them what they're using and and for the quote common people they would use a hamstring graft but if one of their athletes got hurt of course they'd use a patel tendon graft <laughs> and i and i wondered about that and he said well they just they were they're better athletes so they could handle it the, um, better and i'm going well i think our younger patients are putting huge demands on their, their bodies too and if we know that this is the best graft why would we not use it um the quadriceps tendon graft i don't have a lot of experience with it was being uh, kind of explored more when i was out in boston um, down by down at uh, UConn with uh, John Fulkerson. He was a big proponent of it. I think it's a great craft. I just my experience is limited with it. Um, we do know there's been a huge shift away from allografts um, in younger patients. There was a, a pretty uh, uh, eye-opening study for a lot of people called the Moon Network uh, uh, Multicenter uh, uh, Orthopedic Outcome Network, and it's a very flawed study because it's pooled data. So there, there's a lot of issues with it, but. I was at the meeting when it was when the data was presented, and there was a lot of gasps that came up in the room. Uh, what they basically did is they stratified, uh, stratified the uh, outcomes of using cadaver tissue, so um, somebody donated tissue versus using your own tissue, and stratified it by age as well as activity level. And there's always been this gestalt that allografts did not function as well. Um, and that using your own tissue was better. But if you look at the data overall, there's about a 1% difference in failure rate um, between them. When you break it down, though, in young athletic males in high-level sports, the disparity is huge. And it slowly gets closer together as you get older. So the, the tipping point is about 40 to 45 years of age and, and lesser active. Um, the data is heavily skewed towards male patients. Um, I think that we all kind of extrapolate toward, towards women as well. But it as my practice skewed much younger, it made me really rethink it. Now, personally, when we were doing allografts in younger patients, we didn't see that failure rate, mm-hmm. um, which is why there's been a lot of criticisms of the study. They didn't look at how were the allografts prepared, what were the allografts, and one of the issues is using cadaver tissue is that patients don't hurt as much. And so when you take somebody's patella tendon, as Aaron, you know, they hurt. They don't want to do a lot early on, so while that graft is still integrating and, and you know, the body is growing into it, um, it is protected more. But if you don't hurt that much and you're a bit more cavalier, oh, I'm just, I'm running late for class, I'm going to run up the stairs at, at school, well, you're only, you know, six weeks out from your surgery, but it doesn't hurt that much. 
uh, that's going to stretch out the graft or make the graft fail because regardless of what you put in, that tendon graft is a scaffold the body has to grow into because no matter what it is, it's dead tissue, whether it came from you or from somebody that died when you put it back in. Yeah. So, yeah, that... Um that was an awesome conversation just to, to be here for. Um, you did mention, uh, I think it was Amari Rogers was the kid from Clemson that came back super early. Um, I, I actually had that down here as a, something I wanted to ask you about. And um, there's talk of like Kevin Durant in the NBA coming back from his Achilles uh, injury like way sooner than expected. And that seems to like, ever, they're obviously incentivized to come back as soon as possible. Uh, for the most part, um, is there like what is the industry doing that's pushing those athletes to come back sooner? Is that more so their regimen and their nutrition and their all all around care team, or is that something surgical that you that um, they're able to do that's new or um, maybe cutting edge compared to what the normal population would be able to get right now? I think it's a combination of a lot of things. One you have to raise a select population of people that get to that level of athletics. So they're already special athletes. And so you're dealing with a higher level motor control, what's called proprioceptive sense, joint sets, and just body control, body management. Second, they have a full team. Um, Without giving a lot of specifics, I always find it fascinating that, um, for example, an NBA player that tears ACL, we give them 10 to 12 months to come back yet I'm supposed to get my high school student back in four to six months with 20 visits to physical therapy, and they're going to school, and maybe they've got a part-time job, um, while they probably still have to go to practice um, and watch even though they can't participate. Whereas an NBA player's got seven-day week care, six hours a day, an entire team of people dedicated from nutrition to working on the soft tissue to strength training and every device that you could possibly have, and they get months longer. Now their demands are going to be higher on the body, but I've always found that to be a fascinating thing. Um, So they definitely have a better availability of people. I'm not going to say it's better people, but there's a better availability of people and and tools. Um, I'm a big believer that the greatest therapy aids that that the therapists have are their hands and their brains because when they can communicate well with patients and and they can feel stuff with their hands and work through the tissue, um, they can really help people move forward. Um, A lot of the innovations that people are talking about are things like the PRP and the stem cells and um, different scaffolds and and different things we're implanting and different materials. You know, we're still in the infancy of it. We don't understand it. And I I make this joke all the time to my patients. I don't really want to be on the front of the wave of these things. Every once in a while, the wave crashes. And there was a a great, great screw that came out for us to use for ACLs from one of the implant companies and it was awesome. It was the greatest material. It was going to revolutionize it. Except for the fact that about nine months later it was pulled off the market um, because it was causing huge cystic defects in people and having big reactions to it. So unfortunately some of these innovations may not work. Um, I'd rather be on the back side of the wave, let somebody else figure it out and I'm happy to incorporate in there. Uh, With this particular player from uh, um, Clemson what they did is they soaked the graph in, in stem cells. And the idea is great. It may work. Um, I would also argue there's a chance that could also cause a massive inflammatory reaction to destroy the graft. Sure. We just don't know. And, and um, I don't know how you uh, quantify it. And to the credit of the doctors and, the, and even the person who wrote the article, they're not 
claiming that that's going to be the latest, greatest thing. They said that's what they do. And, and I think they were very good in how they put that out there. Um, you know, things like uh, Kevin Durant's Achilles tear. Achilles are, are some of the hardest injuries to come back from because it's just so debilitating and you have to protect it for so long because the forces are massive that go through there. Um, you can add things, PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. And PRP is almost like the precursor to stem cells. It's designed to recruit the stem cells there is how I look at it for people. Um, the, the best analogy I've ever come up with is that these are areas that don't have a good blood supply. And so you need blood supply to fix things. So imagine if you wanted to build a new house in the middle of the woods, you can either carry a bunch of bricks every day in a backpack um, and drop it off out there. It's going to take you a while to get it there. Or you can build a road, take some trucks and drop it all off. The PRP is designed, let's build that road. The PRP itself is not going to fix the problem, but it's going to bring the, the pathways there to help you there. Theoretically, the stem cells are the trucks bringing the, the, uh, the bricks in to build the house. And it's an intriguing idea. I will tell you that where I struggle is that the greatest way to get a blood spot of the area is tear the tendon. Sure. Now there's a big hematoma. I'm sure anybody who's ever sprained their ankle or gotten injured, you know you swell right away. Yep. That's the body's way of getting the healing cells there. Um, so that's kind of a good uh, segue into kind of the last topic I wanted to, to have you guys cover um, was kind of the relationship that you have with the therapy industry, um, just because we are a, a physical therapy company. And obviously, we think what we do is uh, effective and important uh, in the rehab of uh, patients. Um, but we wanted to get your, your thoughts on like, there are some surgeries like hip replacements, um, where they say, you know, PT is not, ne not necessary, but you can go, um, with, with, um, surgeries of, of that, uh, ilk, um, what, what do you think about therapy and is it beneficial or would you rather just have the patient kind of recuperate, do their home exercise program that you guys give them, um, how do you feel about about those kind of surgeries? I'll be very honest with you. I think therapy helps everybody. Um, okay. I, I think that there's very few things that therapy can help because we all have imbalances, deficits that, that can be corrected. So I, I think it's it, it's somewhat patient-specific. You know, I'll give you an example of my world. I'm, I don't do hip replacements at this point, um, but a simple knee scope, a meniscectomy, and to say simple isn't fair to patients because it's a big deal to them, and it is, it's a, it's a life change because it's a new experience for them. Um, a lot of them, it's expensive sometimes, and so they would rather do it on their own, so do some basic exercises. We'll see them back you know, a couple of days after to go through everything, and then we'll see them back two weeks later, and if they're not progressing well, then, hey, it's time. We need to get you in some formal therapy. Some things can respond very easily, just uh, exercise, bike, get things lubricated, moving well, and they'll do well. Um, Unfortunately, there's a very big push economically, and that's what's driving it. I don't yeah. think it's anything to do with the quality of care. I think it's economics, and uh, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating to me that uh, we have to beg and plead to get therapy visits for patients that have some devastating injuries. You know, and, and, and I find it amazing that insurance companies in, in certain cases will give 20 visits a year. So if you break your ankle in January when you slip in the ice, and then unfortunately in uh, um, October, uh, you're cutting down trees and you slip, you dislocate your shoulder and we can avoid surgery by doing good rehab. Um, but, oh, but we used all the visits in the spring and the insurance company says, well, it's too bad. That, that's very frustrating. And, 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 I, and I think that it's, I know how it's happening because I get the economics of it, but it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me from what's good care. 
And so, you just sorry talking back the ACL situation too is you have some of these young kids 15 16 where this could potentially I mean this is altering their life it's a big change they potentially miss school and then just what it does to their emotional state because they're missing out time with friends and what they're all the stress from school from school work and what they're missing but then they only get 20 visits a year to kind of do the same thing and in theory you want to see an ACL for a good four six months and kind of follow them through not tw- not two three times a week but you're catching up with them every couple of weeks to continue to progress their strength and monitor how they're doing um, in between sessions but it gets really frustrating when you only have 20 20 visits to like make or break this entire surgery which consumes a lot of their life for anywhere from like you said six to 12 months after the fact so it's definitely frustrating and and, you know to be honest one of the problems with healthcare is that there's been huge reactions to small uh, impropriety is the wrong word but people who took advantage of the system it happened physicians did it whether it's writing prescriptions become prescription mills and they've made now writing for uh, uh, pain medication uh, just jumping through hoops not saying it's not inappropriate to do some of that, but that it is, it's changed how we do things. There's certainly been physical therapy facilities that says, oh, this patient has 40 visits. Let's Absolutely. schedule out for three times a week for the next, uh, um, you know, 12, 13 weeks, and then we'll get all your visits done, even if they only need eight visits. And so people have taken advantage of it. And so it's unfortunately happened, but in our experience and with the, the quality folks that we work with and that we choose to work with, we haven't seen that um, because we try to stay away from that. So what's, like, what's for you guys, what's the, what would be the ideal way to, for insurance companies to schedule, like have a set amount of visits for patients or would it just be purely by need basis? Because I know like our therapist too, when when we have to call the insurance companies to argue for more visits, that's a pain in the butt, but would it be more realistic to have unlimited visits, but have to check in every 10 visits, kind of like Medicare, um, I know that would be a pain in the butt. I, I know there's not a perfect answer to it, and I don't think anybody has, like, the, the perfect solution, but what would that look like for you? I think there's always going to be somebody overlooking it, and, and, I, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. It's, un, it's unfortunate we've gotten to this, but what I prefer is that if we have to make these phone calls, I'm talking to a peer. I sure. don't want to talk to somebody that, that is sitting in a cubicle in some dark room with no windows whose first word is always no. <laughs> and that doesn't have the, the education that, that is understanding of what we're doing. They have a list of things to deny, not to say, oh, that makes sense. Because I can tell you to the credit of the insurance companies, almost always when we demand what's called a peer-to-peer where we talk to a physician that's in orthopedics, um, they're generally pretty understanding because they recognize we're trying to be advocates for our patients. And as long as you show a track record of doing the right thing, I think that they have a right to trust us. If we consistently are making bad decisions and they can see this track record, they have a right to say, hey, you know, this really probably is not the appropriate expense uh, expense for us to take on. But I prefer that be somebody who does what I do for a living, not somebody that is, you know, graduated a degree in psychology um, and has no understanding of what it means to do an ACL reconstruction with a postal corner and a meniscus repair and how that's not the same rehab as just having a meniscus because they don't understand the complexity of it. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I do find it frustrating in terms of even if you do get, I've had this on a couple different instances where I've had a peer-to-peer, but then they, ne- they necessarily haven't been in the clinic. It's the same person you talk to. They're not treating anymore and haven't treated in 10 to 15 years. As I think you kind of lose that 
patient to PT or therapist like situation of what it's like to actually have that person that has gone through 18 of their visits but still can't do their stairs at home and they're like well do they have to do the stairs I'm like yes they do they have a bedroom on the second floor and they're at eight out of ten pain going up the stairs yes maybe there are some other issues going on but I think when it comes to having that peer-to-peer situation where it's someone that's not really working in the clinic anymore I think that kind of alters the conversation quite a bit as well all right so I want to be respectful of your time so um, I want to give you a chance if if you have anything that you want to promote or or say or anything like that do you have any organizations you're working with that you you want to get out there you know, I, I think that, the, I guess one thing I would say, Lakefront Marathon is coming up in a week, and uh, if people are, are out and about for it, it's a, it's a wonderful event. It's a big community-wide event that uh, covers a lot of ground. Starts from Grafton High School, and this year is ending up at uh, some of the best grounds, and, and uh, just a big uh, big fan of the whole experience. Um, my biggest thing is that uh, technically I'm a sports medicine physician, which is really a term that most of us don't particularly care for. Uh, I like to think of myself much more as an activity doctor, uh, my job is to keep people active. And uh, whether that means that you go for a walk with uh, uh, your wife down by the lakefront or it means you go golfing or it means you get out in the fishing boat, um, but to get up and do things, I think that is so important for our health. You know, we have a very short season around here for people to get outside safely. You know, I certainly don't want people, you know, doing a lot of these things as we're getting older in the wintertime when it's icy, um, but to, to find ways to stay active and, and to keep moving is so important for uh, I think overall health and in particular my world joint health we know uh, motion is good well thank you for your time Aaron and Dr. Gordon um, we hear nothing but good things from our patients about you and uh, from the therapists that interact with you so we appreciate you giving us the time I appreciate it. we're very lucky we get to work with some wonderful people and you guys make us look very good so we appreciate <laughs> it thank you have a good day thank you.